manner of creature are you? One beyond your power to destroy. It would not seem so. You cannot see. But I can. What? What do you see? I see your defeat. Like many arms surrounding you in a cold embrace. Welcome, everyone, from across the universe to the Wampa's Lair Podcast. Star Wars is for everyone, so pull up a chair, get comfortable, and join the conversation with your hosts, Carl LeClaire and Jason Hunt, here in the Wampa's Lair. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Wampus Lair Podcast. This is episode number 535, Outbound Flight. I'm, as always, one of your hosts, Jason Hunt, and with me, the Thras and Thrawn to my Aralani, we've got Carl LeClaire and Steph Orm. Steph, you can be Thrawn. How's it's it going, fine. guys? I was going to say, which one am I? <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> I love it. I love mostly that yeah. I'm not Aralani. <laughs> <laughs> I lo- I'm a little jealous that Jason gets to be Aralani. I mean, I love Thras, yeah. but I also love Aralani. Yeah, she's she's awesome. fantastic. Uh, uh, but yes, they're they're a great trio, and I wish we had more adventures with the three of them. Um, maybe maybe Mister Zahn will give us some more. Uh, he's your he's your BFF, Steph. T- call up Timmy. Let him know we want more. Yeah, I'll text him. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> we need it. We need uh, uh, an adventure with these three just getting into trouble, hijinks and mayhem. Make it Scooby Doo. Um, <laughs> I want it. I want it so bad. <laughs> I would have gotten away for it if it wasn't for that Thrawn. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, folks, we're so excited to have you with us for this in-depth conversation about debatably one of the best novels in the Legends canon, Outbound Flight, uh, published January 31st of 2004. Uh, Boy, that was just a few months before my high school graduation. I am older than you two, um, but not old. (laughs) Um, But yeah, this this is... Oh my god! I I was also arrived very late to this story myself. I I think I just read it for the first time maybe five years ago, um, and I've now read it three or four times since. It is so freaking good. Um, obviously, Steph, we invited you to be part of this conversation. One because we love having you on, and two, anytime Thrawn gets into the mix, I can think of no one better to bring blue light into the podcast than you. Um, so. Yeah. And I, I remember when you started rereading it yourself, because uh, we both grabbed that new Essential Legends version of it. And uh, I remember you sending me a photo with all of your little like sticky notes that, yeah, oh, there it is. Yeah, you're like ready to go. And I was like, this, is, this is great because uh, um, I'm just going to let St- Steph take take control. And, and Jason, I, this is the first time you've read a book in a while. And I don't mean I mean that in the sense of you, you are typically an audiobook guy. 
Um, but this is right. the unabridged version will be available for Outbound Flight, I believe, in January or February. Um, but right. you you went to the local library and grabbed a copy and uh, you you old schooled it there, bud. What was that like? I did. <laughs> oh, it was great. It, it was great. You know, I, I used to old school these all the time. Um, but because I, you know, I go out and about I, a lot of my my book, you know, uh, consumption is like while I'm out walking or running errands and stuff like that. So that's why I do the audio book. And sometimes it's nice to just have it going while I'm working because I work from home and it's easy to do that. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I spent the weekend uh, basically plowing. I, I like trickled through about half of it um, in the last like week or so. And then I spent the weekend and I finished the rest of it in like a four hour sitting. Um, so I was like, yep, no, uh, this is fun. I like this a lot. Uh, it's a great book. <laughs> the, I read it. Um, way back in the day, probably around when it came out, maybe like a year or two after it came out. Uh, but it's been f- since then, since I've read it. So I'd forgotten a lot of it. Uh, so it was really great to get back and revisit it. And, uh, it's, it holds up, uh, a lot. So I'm really glad that we, that we're revisiting this and talking about it because it's a, it's a good one. Um, and I just want to, you know, make sure everybody knows spoilers abound we're going to talk about anything and everything that we want in this book uh maybe not in any particular order we have no uh structure for this um so if you're curious about what we're talking about do what i did go to your library get the book it'll be on audible uh unabridged you know beginning of next year uh get yourself a copy it's a good one um but yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun, and uh, we're, I'm looking forward to what we get into with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I appreciate you giving that spoiler warning now, Jason, because the conversation is going to go anywhere we want it to, but uh, nothing is off limits. So if you've not read the book and want to stay spoiler-free, we hope you'll come back after you've read the book and, uh, and listen in on the discussion. Um, but it's also been out for 19 years, so you know right. spoilers are probably a little expired by this point. Some fast, uh, <laughs> some fast math, Jason. Um, quick, Steph, tell your husband. <laughs> Jason's quick at math. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was so exciting. And you know, it's funny because, Steph, we were talking right before you joined us on the call about how many times you've been on the show now. And I think this is your third time. Um, but I remember one of the times you were on, we were talking about Thrawn just kind of in general and all three of us were like, oh my gosh, outbound flight. It's a great story. Great book. Thrawn's in it. And then we were all like, we don't really remember what we loved about it. We just know we loved it. So we're excited to like, we are owning the mistake of not being able to flush that out more by giving a full episode devoted to, to the details of the story. Yes, yes. The hilarious part is, I, like, reading it again, I'm like, yeah, I think this is, like, my favorite Star Wars book. <laughs> 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 and yet, like, I uh, yeah, specific. but, like, a re- <laughs> <laughs> it, it had been a while. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's been a while. It's the bright lights and cameras for the podcast, you know, it, yeah, it's, you know, it's spur of the moment. Never mind. <laughs> There's been a lot of High Republic happening between then and now. And, yeah, you know, that, is, so, that is fair. So, yeah, that's that been eating fair. up like, all my time. So, so yes, but no. it was such a joy to go back and reread this and remember like what I really loved about it in more specificity than last time so I can actually say things about it. 
<laughs> well, to that end, um, let's just, oh, go ahead, Jason. I, I just wanted to say, you know, I want to maybe give like a quick like setup for where the book is uh, takes place for people mm. who may not have read it. Um, this book is, of course, Legends, con- uh, you know, uh, novel, so it's it's no longer officially canon. However, uh, the way that Zahn writes his new trilogy, he definitely leaves a hole where this could easily just slot right into it without a problem. Um, so it, it's Jason head canon canon. So, um, but uh, this takes place about five years after uh, the Phantom Menace. Uh, so it's right smack dab in the middle of the separatist conflict starting to, uh, to rise up. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting thing. Where do we, where do we want to kick things off? I would like to give that to Steph. I would like Steph to, to just pick up the first thing that she's finds of interest in this novel. Oh man, that's so tough. Um, I think like one of the things that I really love about this book. So, you know, if you're thinking back to, to legends and so for some context too, and I might've talked about this on the episode where we kind of talked about Thrawn in general, but I had started reading the ascendancy trilogy. Um, well, actually, no, I read, I read Zahn's like middle Thrawn trilogy, right? His first canon trilogy and then started reading the ascendancy books before I started outbound flight. I think that was the order. Um, and I remember, you know, being like, oh, my God, I just want more Thrawn. Like, where else can I get it right in Outbound Flight? You know, someone someone had mentioned, I think I saw it on, like, Wikipedia or something, and it was, like, appears in it, right? Um, and I was like, oh, he's just, like, a, a passing mention of him, maybe. Um, not really, really underselling, right? Like, just how, how big of a, of a character he is in this book. So, anyway, I picked it up, and um, I, I guess what I love about this book is that it captures a lot of the aspects of Thrawn that I really love in the canon uh, Thrawn trilogies as well, right? Because there's, you know, we, we talked again previously, like the, the original Thrawn trilogy was kind of, eh, you know, for some of us, I think we were all kind of on that same page, right? It was good for what it was, but maybe not our favorite Thrawn depiction. Um, but this is the much more humanitarian uh, side of him, right? The, the much more likable aspect of him, mm. um, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways. And uh, I just, I just really enjoy that. And I thought it was cool that that was even, you know, part of part of Legends, right? Because in my mind, I thought that was something that it all started with with Zahn's canon books. And to go back and and see, like, oh no, this was kind of there all along, right? That I didn't realize at the time when I started watching Rebels and and you know got introduced to Thrawn initially that way. Um, so that was kind of cool to go back and and see. So maybe like a good a good starting point is just talking about you know, uh, his character and, and other characters as well that kind of stand out to us in, in this book and what makes them special. Because I think that's what really, the plot of this book is so great, but I think, like, some of my favorite characters, you know, in, in Star Wars literature, I think, show up in this book, so. Yeah, I I'm, I think my one of the my favorite things about the book, as you said, Steph, is just the way he writes Thrawn. Um, and Jason, you and I did a... Uh, kind of a Thrawn trilogy episode, uh, gosh, I think over the summer or something, because we'd both reread it. Mm-hmm. And Thrawn in that that original Thrawn trilogy from 91 through 93, um, Thrawn is, I think what's unique about him is, again, like he's this military genius. He's kind of a calm and collected villain. He uses art to protect, 
predict his his uh, adversaries. But that's really it. Like he's he's pretty one dimensional. Um, I frankly found right. it very boring. Even when I first read those those books, I remember like I enjoying I enjoyed it so much just as a continuation of a Han Luke and Leia adventure. Thrawn was like a cool different villain, but I didn't find him anything particularly exciting. Um, and I think. Outbound flight is the first time he really starts flushing Thrawn out as kind of a as a person, um, and kind of to your point, Steph, he he is, uh, I don't know, like there's something likable about him. Um, you know, I I get people being excited about him being a military genius in those original books, but I mean, I just don't care about that. Uh, but Thrawn has like there's this goodness to him, and and that's right from kind of the beginning of the story when he stumbles across this, you know, uh, this smuggler frigate and he befriends that crew, um, particularly, uh, oh my gosh, Cardos, I believe is his name. Um, and mm-hmm. he, he kind of takes Cardos under his wing, starts to teach him the language of the Chiss, wants to learn from him the basic language, right? We have this Thrawn that is genuinely interested in kind of this intercultural exchange. Um, and it's not just for, for the sake of, Oh, I want to know them because they could be my enemy. But it's just this genuine curiosity. And I find that very intriguing about Thrawn's character. And it's also worth noting that Thrawn is also a younger character, right? I mean, this is back in the prequel era. So Thrawn is a much younger man. Um, but he's already got that kind of militaristic um, genius. But there's also this side of him that's very open and curious to learning about different cultures and races. And I, I, I find that particularly intriguing about him. Yeah, it, it, he definitely does have have a curiosity to him. Um, it's definitely something that uh, I, I think, and perhaps uh, with the interaction with uh, Joris Sabayoth at the end of it, <laughs> something that might get a little jaded um, in, in terms of how he might utilize it in the future. Uh, because... Uh, he is genuinely curious about this, but it's also his way of sort of analyzing these people to see if perhaps they might be a threat to the Chiss in the future. You know, th- there, there's layers to his curiosity. There is a genuine love uh, of knowledge and learning and a curiosity about new people and new things. Um, but layered in with that is a wariness and a cautiousness uh, that is very much uh, all about the protection of uh, his people and the Chiss society and everything like that. So um, we really do see, you know, all of that come together in this book. Uh, his his love of, you know, his patriotism, his curiosity, and he kind of gets bit a little bit by it um, in the end of the book. And I think that might kind of jade, you know, make him a bit jaded in the future and make him more analytical and less uh, willing to open uh, because he was very open, especially with Cardas um, during the story. Uh, um, so yeah, uh, I feel like it, it, this is, this is Thrawn's idealistic period, um, <laughs> if you will. Um, yeah, but I, I agree. I think, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot as I was rereading this, because Carl, you and I have talked a lot about, you know, what happens to Thrawn, you know, we've talked about, oh, the way that Thrawn writes him the ascendancy and he's likable, right? And again, has this like, you know, more compassionate side. And then and then how does he become so evil or how does he even become like, you know, Dave Filoni's Thrawn, right? Um, 
and and again, I think that's what was interesting in me kind of rereading this and thinking about like again, this was a legends book, right? So this does still fit in the the universe of uh the original trilogy, right? And so it's like, okay, so there there should be a connecting thread there, right? Those aren't completely different canons. And I think what Jason's talking about is I, I kind of get that too, right? There is like this natural curiosity and some of it is genuine. And, and again, he likes interacting with new people and learning new things. But I think it, it is all uh, underscored, right? By that wariness, by that protectiveness. And it's not like it's, I wouldn't even say it's an ulterior motive, right? Because like, why not both? <laughs> mm, right? right. But I think, I think that's the one thing that we really, and this, you know, like many of the books, but this one in particular, particular, they drive home a lot is, especially in those later chapters, like all like he will do whatever it takes to protect the chess, right? And yes. again, I think first and foremost, that's that's always his thing. And and even when it comes to learning acquiring new languages, right? It's, you know, could this be an ally? Could this be a weapon, a tool, something in the future? You know, I, yeah, I might make some good friends along the way, but ultimately that's that's what people I think still kind of are. He's very analytical in that way. Mm. And that's yeah. a point that's brought up, I believe, in the Ascendancy trilogy. Um, and maybe you two can correct me on this, uh, but I think that's that's very true for things that happen throughout the Ascendancy trilogy. Somebody kind of questions, like, "Hey, why are you befriending kind of all these misfits?" And Thrawn's yeah. kind of rationale behind it is, "Well, they're assets, right?" Um, and and I don't think mm-hmm. it's meant to be purely cold-hearted of like these are just assets. I don't care about them. I think there is a genuine. I mean, I think something that is very intriguing that. Zahn has done with Thrawn, especially in his newer canon books, is he's kind of thrown Thrawn into this uh, somewhere being on the like the spectrum there, and I think that's that's what's made mm-hmm. him relatable to a lot of of readers. Um, so I don't know how much emotionality is in, is involved in that, um, but at the same time, he does see people as assets, um, and I don't think merely from the standpoint of of like I just want to use everybody. But uh, it is. It's kind of this. It's this tactical brain that even goes into relationship building. It's pragmatic, yeah. right? I think is like the nice word for it. Yeah, it's it's practical. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not it, malicious. It's just it's it is what it is. Yeah. Right. He he doesn't sugarcoat things. He doesn't dress things up to be pretty. Uh, he's not a people pleaser. Um, this is what it is. Uh, and he's not going to dress it up. He, he's, he doesn't have time to play those kinds of games uh, or just doesn't feel the need to devote any sort of headspace to that, those kinds of games that, that that's not anything he needs to do, wants to do. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, he's definitely, he's always analyzing everything. I do think, you know, particularly in this book, you know, there, there is sort of a, uh, a curiosity and a, a fascination with the, the smuggling crew because they are from the, the Republic, uh, which is something that they have never had, you know, come into contact with. So that there is sort of like a, uh, a level of archeological, archeological discovery that he, you know, that, that sort of euphoria that comes with new discovery, I feel that that's sort of attached to Thrawn in all of this. Um, you know, so, uh, but yeah, it, it, it all, everything that he does, relationships, uh, all the military planning, everything is filtered through the tactical analysis machine that is in his head. Um, and there's just no way around it. 
Mm. So, yeah. Um, well, I just want to bring this up quick because I got such a kick out of this in the book. I'm pretty sure that uh, Maris has a crush on Thrawn. And I'm so <laughs> here for it. <laughs> I, I remember it. Reading it the first time, and I'm like, "Girl, same." <laughs> he's, he's so charming, <laughs> so charming and honorable, and and just amazing. And you he know, loves uh, art, <laughs> right? I'm, he, he's a beautiful mind. Um, just a, you know, I can fix him. I, Wait, sorry, that she yeah. didn't say that. I um, feel like <laughs> like halfway into the book, I could see Maris just being like, "Are you an angel?" I've heard the deep space <laughs> pirates talk about them. <laughs> oh my god! Um, yeah, yes. If you, if you think about it, right? She's traveling with Quento, and it's implied like they're kind of a thing, right? But he's right. kind of yes. a, a curmudgeonly old fellow, right? Yeah. And then, I mean, then you meet Thrawn. Like, come on, come on, like right. The curiosity is there. Uh, the curiosity yeah, curiosity is not one-sided in this relationship. <laughs> and I love, too, there's a couple moments he kind of indulges it a little too, like, humorously, right? Like uh, yes. There's, yeah. there's um, he, he, I'm forgetting the, Yeah. Yeah, he, he turns to Cardus at one point and he goes, I do believe she is fascinated with me, or something to that effect. I can't remember the exact words, but I, he's like, I do believe she is infatuated or something like that. And Curtis is like, you think uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's like, you might want to be careful about that. And he's like, okay. But at the end, he also is like, you know, don't tell Maris what I did with outbound flight. I want, you know, that, that innocence, yeah. that, that sort of that adulation, that innocent adulation is something he doesn't want to crush. Yes. He's like, I don't want to ruin her image of me which, I, that's one of my uh, favorite moments yeah 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 i uh, yeah i'm i'm glad you mentioned that jason because absolutely i think that's one of my favorite things about thrawn in this book is is he really seems to honor her kind of optimism and and borderline mm-hmm. naivete right um yeah i think thrawn sees that as an asset in a way right that's an asset to her character is that she's willing to to see somebody new and, and, and think the world of them. And yeah, I love that moment at the end where, where that's very important to Thrawn is to, to maintain that integrity of her, of her perception of him. Um, and it's clearly not from Thrawn trying to stroke, stroke his ego or anything. It's not about wanting to, to lie or manipulate her opinion, but simply it's an honoring of her optimism. And I, and I thought that was just so beautiful. And that is something Filoni's Thrawn would never do. Uh, side note, Filoni no. cannot write Thrawn, in my opinion, at least not well. Uh, I feel like F- Filoni's evidence of the fact that he knows Thrawn is he read the original Thrawn trilogy in the 90s, and that's the only Thrawn he's ever read. Um, that's that's my opinion of Filoni's Thrawn, because Thrawn is nothing but a villain in Filoni's stories, um, which, oh, is, yeah. which is fine. Yeah. I mean, he is a villain in a way, but Zahn actually mm-hmm. writes a, a redeemable, like, good character, and then Filoni's just like, nope, he's just a villain. <coughs> so... <laughs> He's a good um, uh, villain. He's a yeah. great villain, though. Like a fascinating villain, Filoni's Thrawn. But yes. but yeah, yeah, agree. Not not a redeeming person. But but yeah, too, I think like, you know, with with Maris, it's again, Thrawn has and we see it kind of throughout the book, like the physical toll that these decisions that he sees himself having to make. Like you can mm-hmm. you know, again, 
in all of these books, I love how Thrawn writes them. Like we are only privy to some of the information. I love right? that you said and, Thrawn and we, writes again, them again. Like, like <laughs> we talked about in um, uh, in, in in the previous episode about how you know all of our exposure to Thrawn comes through the perspectives and the lenses of characters around him, right? His interactions. So we're never mm-hmm. inside his head. And you know, then all the pieces, you know, in like the last ten or so chapters, all like blah, 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 right, everything kind of like falls falls into place at the end, and and all is revealed, right? And Thrawn's kind of had everything planned and figured out the whole time. But as the as the book's kind of going along, right, like Cardis on several occasions notices how like fatigued and tired and and a little, you know, can tell something's kind of off with him and is like concerned about him. And I think it's it's Thrawn coming to grips with you know, what, what he knows he's eventually going to have to do is he's kind of piecing together, right? Like how he, what this end game is going to look like. And so, again, I think by the time all that's come to pass at the end of this book, you know, for, for somebody to come out of this, like unscarred, <laughs> because, because so much has been damaged, right? There's, you know, a, a threat of stability to the Chiss families with the outbound flight technology and everything that's happened, right? Uh, you know, like Thrawn and Thrasnar, well, Thras is gone, right? Like, like so much trauma and and life changing bad stuff, right? Has happened to so many characters. You know, I think like you need he needed to see somebody like Maris walk away from this like unscathed, mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, to give him, I don't know, some some sense of hope for himself, maybe that like I don't know, there's there's some pureness in the world still, or some good out there that isn't tainted by something. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point is, you know, there really wasn't a complete victory in any of this. You know, the, the you know, he didn't, he tried to turn outbound flight aside, but, you know, uh, Sabayoth was just too stubborn, too pigheaded, too arrogant, and wouldn't bend uh, the, the Vigari fleet uh, is wounded and severely damaged but is still out there and will have to be dealt with again at some point uh nothing you know and of course he had to basically destroy a a, a exploratory colony ship uh in the process which is just awful because there's you know children and innocence and all of that on there and and he that nobody won nobody won in any of this and so he need he he really did need to have Maris be able to walk away unscathed because everyone else is damaged um yeah. and that's that might be like his only form of victory out of this because obviously his reputation is obviously incredibly damaged within the chist too you know this is going to hang over his head as you know potentially something that could take him down and and kick him out of a position to protect the people that he loves so dearly um you know th- there's only so much that Arlani and the rest of his allies can do uh to keep him you know there so it yeah it it's a it's a huge huge loss for everybody at the end of this book and she's the only one that really gets to walk away unchanged and and that's uh that's sort of like maybe his little <laughs> ray of sunshine in all of this so well, i i also enjoy his his relationship with cardos 
Um, it, it, it reminds me of his relationship with Eli Vanto in, in that middle mm-hmm. trilogy. Um, it's kind of like his relationship with Arlani um, in the Ascendancy trilogy, among others. Um, as you know, as you said, Steph, right in in Zahn's work regarding Thrawn, we we only get to know Thrawn through the lens of the characters he interacts with. Um, and I think what I appreciate about his relationship with Cardos is uh, he, he he really just kind of I think un, unlike um, oh my gosh what is Maris's uh, gentleman caller's name um, shoot what's oh, that Quinto Quinto yeah Quinto, Quinto yeah. just kind of yeah, sucks yeah, yeah. so Thrawn's just like Quinto's so dismissive of Thrawn so Thrawn's just like yeah this guy's a knucklehead he <laughs> he's a bro I ain't got time for that um, but I think what he appreciates about Cardos is he sees that Cardos also has a genuine curiosity that's kind of mirrored by Thrawn's own. And I thought what's really interesting in the story is when Cardos kind of goes off to the Vagari um, mm-hmm. and Thrawn is kind of using him as a pawn in a way, but also really trusts him. It, it, it kind of reminds me of him sending Eli off to the Chiss, right? It's sending him yeah. into kind of the lion's den, but with full confidence that his time with Eli Vanto has made Eli capable of being up for that challenge. And I feel like he thinks that's also true with Cardos. And, and the whole point of sending Cardos to the Vagari is trying to elicit the Vagari to attack, right? Cause that the, the Chiss expansionary fleet has that, 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 um, that sentiment of we can never strike first. We can only ever strike in defense or in retaliation, so Thrawn is trying to elicit the Vigari to attack so that he can wipe them out, understanding that what a threat they are. So he kind of uses Cardos for that purpose. But again, you know, if you looked at it dismissed of who Thrawn is in relationship to Cardos, you could be like, oh, he's just using him. That's it. But I don't think that's it at all. I, I, I would really compare it to what he's doing with Eli Vanto in that other trilogy, which is he has spent so much time with Cardos that he feels that he's taught him so much. Cardos is also, um, and I, I think another thing I enjoy about Thrawn in, in this book, as well as the ascendancy books is Thrawn also under, he, he, he can recognize kind of these good attributes in characters and will help bring that out. Right. Like I, I don't think for Thrawn with Cardos, it's not like, Oh, Cardos was an idiot and I taught him to be smart, but it was rather Cardos had this kind of this inner brilliance and I helped him come bring that to light. So now I trust him to go into the lion's den to bring the Vigari to us so that I can wipe them out. And I just, I just find that really, you know, really, really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Cardus recognizes it for what it is and basically signs on off on it too. You know, he, he, because when he comes back, he's like, well, did we, did it work? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's, he's in on it to a degree. Right. Like, I think that's, yeah, that's, what's really cool about it. I remember like, you're right, Carl. Cause the first time I read this, I was like, oh my God, what, like, Again, I read right into it, like as they intend, you know, their their enemies to read into it. Like, oh, Cardus is betraying him, right? Cardus is is leaving and is going to sell out the Chiss, you know, playing out as kind of very surface level, right? And when I was rereading it this time, uh, you know, I was I was looking for those hints of like, okay, are there those glimpses into what's really going on? And there's actually a lot that's kind of context that's like dropped and some really um, 
you know, careful wordplay that both Thrawn and Cardus engage in where they never are like lying about what's happening, right? Like there's there's a great I had I had written this down, but at one point Cardus is and this is after he's with the Vigari, um, and he's kind of done his part, like up to what he knows, up to what he's kind of been told he needs to do. Uh and he he's like, Okay, everything that happens now would be under the control of others. And coming into that the first time, you think like, oh, Cardus is saying his hands are just in the fate of the Vigari, right? And whatever the Vigari are going to do and whether or not the Chiss can fend them off and that's that because he's on their ship at that point. But with this additional context, right, coming back to it, you're like, oh, no, he's talking about Thrawn. He's not talking about the Vigari. I mean, maybe kind of, right? As a, <laughs> right? But, but like, no, he's talking about like it's up to Thrawn to kind of do his half of it now. So there's this really cool like trust that they have in each other like you know where cardis doesn't know the full plan but he's like there is a plan right and i've done my part and now i have to sit back and and kind of let thrawn take his course and hope it all works out right and i just think that's it's so cool and it's such a well i mean the, the book is just well written obviously again i love timothy's on but um i just think like that ending is just so neat it's so cool like um it definitely caught me off guard and again i think a lot of the witty kind of wordplay um there's a lot of references to you know thrones again like whatever it takes right like whatever has to be done um cardis like repeating that to himself a few times to kind of steal himself before he goes over to the ship and and a few things like that and so again i think if you go back and you like look for those things it's it's really well written and to kind of tied together and I like the implication is that the plan was sort of developed in glances and understanding nods. You know, it was never fully like discussed at all. They kind of just like anticipated each other's thoughts and actions. Um, and and you can imagine if if this is something that gets was was like a yeah, TV series or a movie. Uh, there would be shots of them sort of like a lot of shots of them sort of like looking at each other, an eyebrow raise, you know, a nod, you know, things like that uh, as they're sort of like, you know, mind melding into the same plan or at least the same general plan, uh, yeah. you know, but uh, yeah, I, I do like that. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like they ever had an actual conversation about this plan at all but that they anticipated it from each other and just walked it out without having to, to say anything. Agreed. So cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, and again, I think that's, that's something that Zahn's Thrawn just does is he, he builds these relationships and, uh, almost acts as like a mentor, like figure to folks, and then has this deep trust in them uh, enacting things uh, on his on his behalf. Um, so yeah. something I wanted to, since we're still on Thrawn, wanted to bring this up too. I think something that's really fascinating is Thrawn is well aware that the actions he takes kind of towards the end of the book by, by drawing the Vigari in and ultimately striking first – uh, he he kind of has this understanding that there's a good chance he's going to be put into exile as a result of mm -hmm. his actions. What do you uh, what do you two think of that? What what does that say about Thrawn that he's willing to break the cardinal rule of the Chiss Ascendancy fleet 
for the sake of of trying to annihilate the Vagari. What is what does that say about Thrawn? Yeah, well, that's always been his mantra, right? Again, like whatever it takes, and mm-hmm. that I think extends to himself, right? If that is the price that he has to pay to do what he thinks is protecting his people, he's he's gonna do it, right? Mm-hmm. Even if that means having to leave his people, um, you know. And so again, if if keeping keeping the technology from outbound flight, right, prevents the families from tearing themselves apart, or you know, whatever whatever needs to be done, I think he's gonna do it. Yeah, definitely. It it he is not important in this. Uh, he his his life, his reputation, uh his service as a military officer uh is all quantified and calculated uh so that if his sacrifice ensures his people are safe he will do it without question, without hesitation. Um, and, you know, which is why he has to have people like Aralani around him to be that buffer, because that means he can, you know, survive some of these political uh, blunders, shall we say, that are these political maelstroms that he creates around himself because uh, he his devotion is to do whatever it takes for the protection of his people. Um, and he has to have that buffer to, you know, smooth things over and ensure that he has at least one more mission uh, that he can push the boundaries again. Um, but yeah, it, it, it really is. He doesn't view himself uh, as essential to the survival of his people. Uh, because if it, if his survival is not guaranteed in a mission, that's fine. If his death is essential in the success of a mission to protect his people, that's probably fine as well. Uh, you know, I, I don't foresee him, you know, he probably would try to figure out a way to get around that, but, uh, if there's no way around it, I don't see why he wouldn't. So. Do you but, think yeah. do you do you both find that Thrawn is rebellious in any way or or is he just I mean maybe we've kind of hit this point several times and I'm just asking the same question again but uh I mean right like as you just said a moment ago Steph you know whatever it takes um but is but is there something rebellious in um, in Thrawn. And, and I also wonder that in, in the context of this story, right, he's, he's drawn to a character like Cardos, who is kind of this smuggler, this guy who lives kind of outside the law, who doesn't have any strong allegiances. I think that's an interesting foil to Thrawn. Thrawn is so incredibly loyal to the Chiss, so incredibly mm-hmm. loyal to his people. And then you've got a guy like Cardos who just kind of, who, who's a survivor, right? To use Star Wars language. He's, he's the one who lives on the fringes just trying to get by. And yet Thrawn gravitates to him and vice versa. How do you, I mean, what do you think's going on there? I'm not yeah. sure. Go ahead, Steph. Yeah. Um, and I'm still kind of, I'm just thinking, like thinking out loud. Okay. Yeah. I guess go, so go ahead if you have something yeah. already. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I would necessarily call it rebellious. 
I would call it uh, definitely driven and passionate. You know, mm. he's not a passionate person in the way that he expresses himself in relationships and things like that. Um, but there is a passion behind his devotion. It's it's devotion. I don't think it's rebellion. It's devotion. Mm. And um, at least from my perspective. So uh, and I think because that devotion is so strong the the rules are more guidelines <laughs> than to uh to him uh in order to you know especially when it comes to the striking first situation but he's so devoted that he will do whatever it takes and i think that devotion um sometimes will definitely blinds him to you know the political fallout that that might happen because he views that as unimportant yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess, on one hand, right, you could, you could call all that rebellious in a sense, right? Like, I mean, you I could. guess you know, going going against your people, right, and your doctrine and all those things. Like, I mean, objectively speaking, that is rebellion in some sort, right? But again, I think, I think, you know, to Jason's point, like, it is, it's coming from a place of devotion. It's coming from a place of duty and 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 love, right, um, and loyalty. So I don't think it's. I, it reminds me of those things where, you know, it, it's like you're in a situation where people around you are doing things that could harm themselves, but you're the rebellious jerk for, for calling attention to it, right? Or trying to kind of snap people out of it or, or you know, get them to do something to improve the situation, right? And I think that's what he's trying to do. So, like, rebellious in the sense of he's going against what he's, like, quote-unquote supposed to be doing, but at the same time in service to those people, Right. He knows better than them what they need, <laughs> I guess, right? Like, so yeah. At, at least he does. At least he thinks he does. Um, now, yeah. of course, the ruling families would definitely call him rebellious. They would call yeah. him rebellious. 100%. Um, yeah. 100%. So yeah, I, I think there is a level of that. It just depends on which side of the issue you're sitting on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Deb, I was going to say, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Like, you know, to, going against his family like that. Right. I think is absolutely in there. It's treasonous, maybe even, right? Yeah, um, it, it could be considered treason. Yeah. But. Um, well, you know, I've, steering a little away from just Thrawn, because um, he's, yes. he's just one part of this of this story. Um, I'm also curious, like, so, so something else I really enjoy in this book um, is the way in which it's trying to bridge um, uh, things into the New Jedi Order series. Uh, and I love, there's this moment where Thrawn and Sidious have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And Sidious is trying to elicit Thrawn's help to destroy both outbound flight as well as this other force that's out there. Um, and Sidious's worry is that if outbound flight crosses into the unknown regions, they might bump into what essentially are the Yuuzhan Vaughn. They're never named in this book, but it's very clear because this book came out right after the New Jedi Order series wrapped. Um, this book is also connected to the, uh, the novel Rogue Planet, 
uh, which which is uh, uh, a legend story about Anakin and Obi-Wan shortly after Anakin becomes part of the Jedi Order. And they go on this this uh, mission to Zenoma Seacoat, which is uh, a living planet. And they're in the search of Vergare. Vergare is this missing Jedi from the prequel era that we've come to learn in the new Jedi Order series, obviously, is is kind of joins the Yuzhan Vong. She'll eventually join Jason, uh, train, train Jason Solo. Um, but I, I love how this is also connecting all these fun little dots uh, for, for, you know, like Star Wars Legends fans. It was really cool to see that outbound flight is kind of in danger of bringing the Yuzhan Vong into our galaxy too soon. And, and the Chiss are aware of them. They call them the far outsiders. Um, and are aware what a threat they'd even be to the Chiss. But Sidious's concern about outbound flight getting out there is Sidious is obviously he, he's, he's working on becoming the emperor. He's working on building his empire so that he can resist the Yuzhan Vong when and if they show up. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of this really neat story point of, I don't, again, I don't think Sidious is doing it because he cares about the people of the Republic. He just cares about power and he, <laughs> he, he wants to, yeah. and the only thing that could potentially eventually threaten his power are the Yuzhan Vong. Um, so for him, it's, we have to eradicate outbound flight so that they don't show up. And he kind of tries to sell that to Thrawn in the sense of like, listen, these outsiders wouldn't only be a threat to our Republic, but they'd also be a threat to you, the Chiss. And Thrawn's aware of that. So I like that. Again, it's it's very, it's so perfectly Sidious in the sense of, you know, think of the way he tempts Anakin. It's all about tempting him to buy the things that he cares most about. Well, that's, even though he barely knows Thrawn, he somehow knows enough that Thrawn really cares about his his people. So he says, listen, if they get out there, they could become a problem for the Chiss. So help me destroy them. Yeah. I, there's a lot of really cool different threads, I think, that are connected in the books, like you said. And, and that's, again, I think it's so, like, masterfully done tying all these these threads together. Um, <laughs> I don't know, just, just talking about, you know, Sidious and Anakin, Carl, it made me laugh because I, you know, the moment when he realizes that Obi-Wan and Anakin are, are on outbound flight, which was not part of the original yeah. plan. And it, and it comes up when when Doriana shows him like the guest list, and he's like, "Wait, what? <laughs> the what guest? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Great, just such a great moment." Um, you and said he's like, no. "Yeah, <laughs> I love it." He's like, "We have to get them off there." Um, yeah, and and so yeah, I was I was thinking about that, but um, but yes, I agree. Like it's it's this very interesting. I always like it when when different opposing forces are forced to at least temporarily unite or seemingly unite as a front, right? Because of some other bigger opposing threat. Um, and again, this idea of like some looming larger threat in the galaxy is like a, a theme that shows up in the Ascendancy trilogy as well. Um, with the, the Grisk, right? Or, mm. or kind of the big, the big bad in, in that context. So I like that that's kind of a theme that's kept, kept going throughout those books. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, there, there's a lot of great stuff in here, and, and I do think the the connections to Verger and the Yuzon Vong are really cool. Um, definitely, you know, in, in that era of Star Wars Legends, that was that was all the rage, and so to have those thrown in was was really really cool. Um, but I do love. I, I was surprised 
going back and rereading this, how much Palpatine Sidious, how involved he was with all of this. Obviously, particularly from the you know the outbound flight side of things, um, and and how not only is uh, is getting rid of outbound flight, you know, safeguarding his potential power in the future, but it also gets rid of a bunch of Jedi that he deems possible troublemakers in the future uh, that could be problems for him in his ascension. Uh, so the, he was very specific, you know, in suggesting who should go on this trip to, you know, Joris Sabayoth, uh, because Palpatine is, of course, definitely friends with with that Jedi Master. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was I was very surprised on this reread how involved Sidious was in all of this, and I thought it was fantastic. And of course, we get the first meeting of him and Thrawn, uh, which of course we know in the future that Thrawn will end up working for for him um which is probably part of you know that i feel like there's something we haven't seen yet uh between thrawn and sidious you know that there definitely is sort of a push and pull uh, you know in their relationship but sidious uh knows how to to use thrawn's devotion against him you know, it's what he does with Anakin, uh, and and I feel like there's definitely some of that that could explain uh, Thrawn's transition from this curious, inquisitive person that we see here into a more cold, calculating villain that we see in the future. Um, I feel like we don't have all of that story. And Zahn loves Thrawn so much that he don't, I don't think he wants us to start viewing Thrawn as a villain. (laughs) Um, And still, so he, he likes playing in this time period, I think, so that we still can see Thrawn as a hero. Um, But I do love how, uh, how Palpatine was, was involved throughout this book. And it wasn't just like a little bit at the beginning and he shows back up at the end. It was like, no, he was all kind of woven throughout it. And it was really well done. Uh, I feel like, I feel like he got, uh, Zahn got, got Sidious and Palpatine really nicely down, um, in this. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to, one thing I want to talk about, um, as well from the book, I think that's probably one of my favorite aspects in the novel is the character of Lorana Gensler, um, who yes. is Siboth, Sibayoth, however the hell you want to say his name, um, his Padawan who becomes a knight in order to travel on outbound flight. I love, um, I love her character in the beginning. Just she's this this young Jedi who's really struggling to connect with their master. Um, something Obi-Wan certainly uh, understands with his own struggles with being Anakin's master. Um, mm-hmm. But most importantly, my favorite thing about Lorana is when she connects with her brother, Dean Jinsler. And we learn mm-hmm. kind of this really, I think one of my favorite things about 
Timothy Zahn is a Star Wars author is just the way he he does world building. I think he he makes the Star Wars world so much richer in all of his books. Um, and I think that's something a lot of new authors are actually really, really not very good at. <laughs> um, as much as I love a lot of the new canon authors in their ability to write good character, I think they are often lacking in world building. Um, whereas I think that's one of Timothy Zahn's strongest attributes. And what I love that he did with that, with the character of Lorana is we learn that her parents were workers in the Jedi temple. But as soon as she is handed over to the temple, because she's force sensitive, they are told they can no longer work there because families are not allowed to have any sort of contact with their children who are now Jedi. So her brother, her younger brother, Dean grows up just always being compared to his sister, the perfect Jedi, the one who's doing so many great things. And I, and, and, and it makes me really like Dean's character as I, growing up with an older brother who was valedictorian went to an Ivy league college. Like my parents often were like, how come you don't do this? Like your brother. And I'm like, because I'm not him and I don't care. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I love this very human aspect and, and, and how much that bothers Lorana. Like, you know, it, she, she's really trying later on in the book to cultivate some sort of empathy from her brother, but understands that it's not going to happen. So even like, if she's, she knows she's kind of going to die at the end of the book. She implores Cardos though, to please find my brother, tell him what I've done, tell him who I am. Right. Um, and then, of course, this book is also deeply connected to Timothy Zahn's book, Survivor's Quest, which was actually published before Outbound Flight. And it's the story of Luke and Mara going to find the remains of Outbound Flight. And Cardos is in that book as well. Um, but all that to say, I, I really like this attribute of, of learning once again, just kind of uh, some of the toxicity of the Jedi Order, right? Like that. They they strictly prohibit any sort of connection. And Jason, we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago in our Dooku episode when talking about Dooku going back to Sereno and connecting with his sister, um, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the Order's insistence that uh, that a that a Jedi is not to have any sort of contact with their family. Um, so I just thought it was really cool that we got to see a Jedi character connect with a sibling and seeing how that sibling resents her and the Jedi by extension. Yeah, that is super yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah I, it, it, oh, go ahead. I, I was going to slightly switch gears about Lorana still, but so if you had had more to say on that, by all means. Yeah, I, it, it was you know it. It's nice to have sort of a you know a. I don't know if a, a different sort of uh, opinion here, you know, uh, of of what people might might see as a Jedi. You know, obviously the, you know. Uh. Sabayoth is very much uh, in the camp of like, well, everyone should feel honored to have, you know, one of their, their children uh, become a Jedi, you know, that that's, he's very, you know, everything is extremely black and white for him. Rigidly. So God, I, we're going to have to talk about him because he needs to be punched in the face. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and she deserved a better master. I'm going to just say Lorana deserved a better master uh, because she could have been one of the good ones. Uh, but uh, having having this moment with her brother, I, I think really showcased Lorana's uh, em- 
empathetic abilities, you know, and yet she still doesn't let herself be run over by him either. She's like, when, when she realizes that she can't change the way he's feeling, the way he's, you know, uh, she can't change his mind. She can't, uh, you know, make him feel better. And she can't change the way he's angry at himself and his parents uh, and her all at the same time. She's like, well, I can't do anything more. I need to remove myself from the situation. And she says, all right, well, I hope you find the healing you need. Uh, And she leaves. So she's not only being very empathetic and trying to be sympathetic and uh, listen to him and do her best to make things better for him, but she also is able to like be aware enough of herself, be like, all right, I need to remove myself. I'm not making things any better. And I don't need him breaking me down either. But knowing you getting to meet him and getting to know him, you know, opens up a spot in her heart for him so that she wants him to get that healing. Uh, and, and definitely, uh, you know, it, it's nice to see that in, in her final moments, he's on her mind. Uh, and, you know, she hopes that he can still find something to resolve this, this pain that he's and resentment that he's grown up with. So it's a really, it's a really great, uh, side plot to all of this. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it wasn't, you know, there wasn't too many scenes that dealt with, with, with this. Um, but the ones that we got were really, really good. So. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely co-sign that. No, I think she's one of those characters where, you know, she starts out so kind of innocuous and just kind of there. And as that book goes on, like I just grew to love her so much. Um, and, and I love, again, like she's this Jedi, but she's kind of a crap Jedi, right? By like by <laughs> Jedi ability standards, like she's not, not particularly skilled, right. Or strong in the force and struggles a lot. And I love the the comparisons you get between her and her abilities, but also her relationship with her master. And then you get Obi-Wan and Anakin who, like you said, Carl, they have their own struggles, but there are so many, like so many conversations that she has with Obi-Wan about, you know, uh, Sabath, Sabath, whatever, right? Sabayoth. I do like that. I do like that. Um, yeah, and and again about him being a, a tough teacher, and you just see these like really interesting parallels, but also the contrast between where she's at and where Anakin's at, uh, skill wise, but also just in terms of how they've been nurtured or that that lack of nurturing. Um, and she's constantly comparing herself, like here's this kid who's just outshining me, <laughs> right? Like just naturally, <laughs> like Lorana reminds me of the person, and and maybe this is you guys or, or, or was some of you but like the the person who the friend who had to be like five times as hard as anybody else and showed up to the test and got like a c mm. <laughs> right? uh, versus versus the friend who was like just naturally gifted and barely studied and walked in and like just aced things all the time and how mm. frustrating that is right and so i feel like she's this very relatable person um because she's not exceptional and again, she's being kind of outshone by this young Jedi prodigy. Uh, and so there's already like this, this 
deep connection, you know, I, I felt with her as someone who can be hard on themselves, right? Um, and then you get those layers of like her brother and kind of the, the family struggle also coming in and then the strained relationship with her teacher. And then by, you know, you see this growth of her though throughout the book and by the end, she's this, this hero. And I love that, like really in the end, it's not Jedi ability that, that makes her, um, triumphant in the end, right. Or that she really goes out with a bang with it's, it's her compassion. It's like her love, like at the end, like she's she's gonna make this ultimate sacrifice to try to save who she can from outbound flight right along with thras and to me that was like so beautiful i love the ending of that book like it's, it's tragic but it's like because i love thras too oh like two fantastic characters right just like giving the ultimate thing you can give up um for their their love for others right in lorana's case again the, the people who are aboard the ship and and thras right i think ultimately Thrawn. Um, you know, helping to protect him. And uh, I don't know. It's just so cool. Like, it's such a different different kind of Jedi story, I think, in a way. And that's, you know, the, that combination of things just really always kind of drew me to her. Definitely in my top five Jedi of all time. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. She, she's an average Jedi who's working among above average Jedi. Like, and so yeah. she feels inferior you know, everyone else around her, you know, Sabayoth is considered to be a great master. Obi-Wan is obviously, you know, a fast track to be on the council. Anakin's the freaking chosen one. Everybody around her is just like, you know, masters or, or prodigies. And she's the average Jedi who's like, well, what about me? You know? <laughs> and yeah, she's like, you know. <laughs> such, a good, such a good point. Yeah, it's like, girl. You're in like the major leagues. Cut yourself some slack, <laughs> right? Right. You're still a Jedi. You're yeah. still exceptional. Uh, but she doesn't. Obviously, she doesn't feel that way. Uh, but it's her her compassion and her her willingness to just keep showing up and to keep doing things that uh, really makes her, you know, a, a hero and all of this. And it's it's tragic and poetic that her most heroic moment that, that she ever has, nobody will ever know about, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. oh, so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I feel like to, to kind of close out the conversation, there is one character who's, who we've yet to, to dig into, which of course is Joris Sabath or Sabayoth, however you want to say his name. Um, Depends on where in the galaxy you're from. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but definitely I'll make sure we mention him um, because I, I will say, I think Zahn writes him in such a way that it's consistent with the Joris Savath we meet in the original Thrawn trilogy. And, and mm -hmm. in the sense of that, that is a cloned Joris who's also gone a little bit insane after years of isolation but it's not that hard to believe where he may have started from being this character. He, he, there's, there is this arrogance to him. I mean, you know, right, right from the get go, the Jedi council is wary of him. Mace Windu sends Obi-Wan on the initial part of outbound flight just to keep an eye on him, right? Like this guy, we just don't know about him. We don't trust him. So go keep an eye on him. And like you kind of insinuated earlier, Jason, you know, Palpatine slash Sidious is also wary of him and, and what sort of wrenches he could throw into his plans. But I think 
what I found most fascinating about what, what Zahn does with Jorah Sabath in this book is Sabath is just so convinced that Jedi are elite. They are this, this special breed in the galaxy. And it, it only makes sense that the lesser beings submit to them, right? Joris has a problem with the fact that the Jedi are supposed to be servants of the galaxy. In his mind, they should be serving the Jedi because they are the exceptional ones. And we just see his arrogance showing up all over the book. Um, but I think one of the most notable things is when they're finally off on outbound flight and Joris starts separating force sensitive children from their families saying, we're going to be, we're going to be out there for a long time. It's important to start their training now. And he immediately just starts to um, ostracize himself and the Jedi from the rest of the crew because of his actions. And what's so fascinating about the rest of the crew is they really start to have a disdain for the Jedi. And I think that was something really cool. Obviously Zahn is writing this essentially as a prequel to survivor's quest. But when we get to the book survivor's quest, uh, when Luke and Mara show up around the survivors of, of, of outbound flight, they hate Luke and Mara from the get go because they're Jedi. And that's because of their experience of Joris on outbound flight. And, and I just found that really fascinating that, Sabath is somebody who sees the force as a power to be wielded. Also worth noting that Anakin and him have a kind of chummy relationship, um, right? Because for them, the force is a superpower and it's what makes them elite. Um, Joris is a really shitty Jedi at the end of the day. Um, and it's kind of bizarre that the council hasn't done more proactive work to remove him from the Jedi because he's very, 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 toxic um but i do find him to be a fascinating character because you see him even with all the other jedi that come on outbound flight you know they're all trying their best to be these compassionate characters who are interacting with the crew and then you've got saboth just sabotaging everything oh real quick i think the to your point about why the jedi council hasn't like picked him out or something yet uh is because I feel like he pushes the line in normal Jedi stuff. And obviously we, we kind of see hints of that with the, the opening mission that we get. Uh, how he sort of like toes the line and pushes at the line. But he doesn't like explicitly go over it. It's only when he is the one in charge and they're going someplace that he feels like I can set up a whole new society. That he just lets all of the... Uh, those internal thoughts that he's having, this superiority complex, just be like, all right, this is the moment I have to create a society the way it needs to exist, uh, which is in my image. Mm. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I, was... I feel like, I feel like he, he pushes the line. He kind of toes it. He, he bucks the system a bit, but he never like explicitly, disregards the line um previously but now that he's unsupervised he's like eh screw all those guys we're gonna do things my way uh because i'm obviously the one who knows how things should be yeah exactly i feel like the the council could rein him in before too like so he never never stepped too far he did enough right they obviously sent him out on you know diplomatic missions right he was good at Mm at settling disputes and being a mediator. But, you know, again, 
they were able to kind of keep a leash on him. But as soon as he was an outbound flight on his own where no one could really could really have that leash on him, there he goes, right? Um, yeah, he definitely an interesting character. What you, Carl, before we started, you were, said he had a punchable face, I believe, right? Or we were, that was <laughs> Jason. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what you call it. But I think that, that's, that's very apt. Also, I got to say, he choked my boy, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Not a he does elicit, I, I think one of the things, so when that battle starts kind of towards the end of the book, between the Vigari and Outbound Flight, and I think the Trade Federation's involved in the fight too. Um, but Joris does do like this force meld with the other Jedi on Outbound Flight to try to confuse the Vigari. And I found that really interesting um, because it's not the first time that's been done in Star Wars canon, even at that point. So in Vector Prime, Jason, Jaina, and Ben. Um, not Ben, excuse me, Anakin, the three solo kids, they're able to create this force bond and then they extend that to other Jedi during one of the initial battles with the Yuuzhan Vong in the book Vector Prime. It's really fascinating. Um, it's something we also see in the first book of the High Republic in Light of the Jedi, Avar Chris kind of does this big force meld, um, you know, to, to prevent the great disaster from getting worse. So it was really cool that Joris, while kind of a, butthead of a character is still able to create this force bond with his other Jedi to kind of give them an edge in battle. But yeah. And then he goes so far though, once the battle is over, once he realizes Thrawn is starting to attack them, he, he uses the force to start choking Thrawn out. Yeah. From across interstellar space. Um, and he is so, and of course Lorana feels it too because she feels him snap and go to the dark side. Like this, mm. this moment played out like a movie in my head. Like mm. I could hear the music, the, you know, the walls of the, the dreadnought are shaking as it's taking, you know, fire and explosions as the star fighters crash into it. Um, and in my mind, uh, as Joris starts force choking, uh, Thrawn, we would see like over Thrawn's shoulder in in the Chiss ship on the view screen, Joris's eyes turn yellow. Like that was mm. the image in my head. Mm. Like I, you know, because Lorana says she she felt him turn to the dark side. You know, that was uh, that was explicitly said uh, in the book. Uh, and so, like that was in my head how that scene played out. And his eyes turn yellow as he starts doing that. Um, so it was. It was a really intense moment. And of course, that's what triggers, you know, Thrawn and, and Dorian, uh, Dorian, is it, Doriana, uh, or Doriana. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Doriana, who's Palpatine's stooge um, to basically launch the bombing run on outbound flight that completely annihilates everyone inside the dreadnoughts. So. Because it's the only way to stop. Sabaoth from uh, from choking Thrawn, and mm. we need Thrawn. So, <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I certainly it, would take that trade. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, interestingly enough, um, you know, Sabaoth's arrogance is the reason that outbound flight is ultimately crippled. Right? It, it, yeah. They take that. Yeah. They take that opportunity to to launch this attack on outbound flight. 
because they need to uh, they need to stop Sabath. Um, so he his arrogant actions and his turn to the dark side is is ultimately the downfall of outbound flight as well. Yeah, it's it's awful, you know, and uh, you know I, the the one thing I could say is that. I feel like there were definitely moments that perhaps, you know, Obi-Wan or the other Jedi on outbound flight could have stepped in, you know, but he's the one in charge. He was given this assignment, you know, that they're, they're still trying to be respectful and deferential. And Lorana is even asked to go speak with him. But the implication that we get is that she never does. She never gets around to it because she doesn't want to question him because he's a master and she's just a knight you know uh i also think she doesn't really want to have to be talked down to like she's uh an ignorant padawan again i feel like that might be a little bit inside her as well but that's maybe just me reading into things um to be fair i i i would have done the same thing let's just avoid the conflict and hopefully it'll work itself out um but it doesn't uh, and that's, that's a problem for everyone. So. Yeah. Um, well, for the sake of time, uh, are there any other points from the book that either of you want to make sure we, we cover before wrapping this up? Um, I don't think so. I do. Uh, I do want to say uh, there are some some scenes between Obi-Wan and Sabayoth that I thought were really well written. Um, Obi-Wan sort of trying to push back on on Sabayoth and, and the way he's doing things. and uh, Because that's, that's when you really kind of start to understand Sabayoth's justification for everything and, and really kind of fully get his explanation for his superiority complex. Um, and, you know, the, it makes me think if Palpatine hadn't gotten Obi-Wan and Anakin off of outbound flight, outbound flight probably would still be out there in the galaxy. Mm. Would it, though? I think Obi-Wan would have uh, taken drastic action against Sabayoth because I felt like he was getting close to that. At least that's the way I was reading into it. I could be wrong. Um, but he was definitely getting to the point where he's like, something needs to be, something needs to, to happen. And like his patience level with Sabayoth was almost nil. And then Palpatine swooped in and pulled him out. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like Obi-Wan might have interfered uh, and intervened on behalf of Outbound Flight and the Chiss. Um, but that's that might just be me reading into things because I like Obi Wan. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I'm I'm going. Th- I was literally trying to remember because I remember just reading very recently that conversation when he decides to pull him off, and it feels like Obi Wan's kind of relieved, like, oh, thank God, <laughs> I can get off this ship, right? So, um, mm-hmm. he was, yeah, I mean, he was definitely getting fed up. That that is interesting. I had never really contemplated like, what if they had stayed? Could things have turned out differently? That is interesting. Hmm. Maybe. It's something to consider. I don't know. You know, maybe I'm wishful thinking. Um, 
but uh, I think the likelihood that things would have turned out differently are definitely higher if Obi-Wan and Anakin stay on outbound flight uh, than not. So, Yeah. Um, what about for you, Steph? Is there anything else from the book you want to make sure we, we don't miss on? Yeah, uh, I think I feel like we've covered it a lot. Um, you know, again, I think this book has an amazing plot. I think really great characters that I love. I mean, maybe the one that I would just say a little bit more about is is Thras because um, you know he comes up in the Ascendancy trilogy, specifically the the final book in in the trilogy, Lesser Evil. Um, we get callbacks specifically to think to events in Outbound Flight, which I think is really cool because again, I love love this book. Um, Right, but but Thras being Thrawn's uh, brother of sorts. Um, so again, they're not biological brothers, but you know, both uh, of the Eighth Family and grow up as as friends. And uh, again, you know, in, in the end of this book, Thras kind of makes the ultimate sacrifice again in part to protect Thrawn. Um, and like I said, there are callbacks to their relationship, flashbacks of how that relationship actually develops. Uh, in in the book Lesser Evil, and I remember being so ecstatic um, to be like, "Oh my God, he's back! He's he's been like reintroduced into canon." Because that's one of my favorite relationships. Um, again, obviously, you know, loving Thrawn as a character um, and seeing that really like actually seeing him have relationships because he has so so few of them, right? So mm-hmm. few people he calls friends or confidants. Mm-hmm. And so again, Arlani, obviously a rock star. Um, but him and Thras, I think, always looking out for each other too. Um, you know, in, in at one point we find out that that you know Thrawn and Arlani were risking their career um, again with kind of everything that was going on, right, and trying to send outbound flight away. Um, but Thras was actually like not in on all of it, so Thrawn had actually lied to Thras a little bit to protect him, so that he he genuinely had no idea like what was all going down. Um, as kind of a, again, like, hey, I know my career and Arlani's career might be toast, but we're trying to protect you in this, right? And, and Thras being kind of hurt about being deceived. But again, it was it was done kind of out of love, right? Um, so it's it's just one more relationship that I, I really enjoy. Um, and again, I think kind of rounds out the character, the character that is Thrawn. So I'd be remiss if I didn't at least give him a shout out. But um yeah, I feel like we've I feel like we've done pretty good justice to to a book that has a lot packed into it. It it really does. It's a it's a really action packed book with references to all sorts of different things. Um, very well done. I will say uh, I'm glad you mentioned Thrast. He deserves a shout out. Um, but just thinking about that, you uh, something you said made me think about this is that uh, I feel like you know losing Thrast really was a huge blow for Thrawn. And it makes me think his relationship with Eli Vanto is sort of his attempt at maybe filling that void mm. uh, that Thras left behind. Um, which is impossible because they're two differently shaped people. But, uh, you know, I, I feel like that's that's something that Thrawn may have been trying to do is find a way to replace that confidant, you know, that he had uh, in Thras with with someone like Eli Vanto. So that just popped into my head as you were talking there, and I just felt like I wanted to say it. <laughs> yeah. I dig it. Cool. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I feel like I, I, I've said all the things I wanted to, and um, I, I'm just so glad we finally got an opportunity to, to do this together. Uh, I read the book, gosh, I read it early this year, and then I read it again during the summer when the new Essential Legend book came out. And that's when I asked Steph, I was like, Steph, will you join us for this? And I was glad she said yes right away. Um, and then Jason was quick to be excited about it as well. I think fair to say that between the three of us, this is obviously a collectively one of our favorite Legends novels. And and even outside of Legends, I would say this is one of my favorite Star Wars novels, period. Like, I don't care that it's not technically canon mm-hmm. anymore. I think it's still one of the best Star Wars books. Um, so if you're listening to this... It's also... And it's also a book that could easily slot back into canon without any issues whatsoever. So yeah, just to put that out there. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, but yeah, so I mean, if you've listened to this, you know, you've heard a lot of spoilers if you've never read the book. Um, but all that to say that, that I can't recommend this book enough. Like it's so good. Um, yeah, so definitely check it out if you haven't. Um, and and you're you're obviously already been spoiled, but. Um, yeah, I just, I, I really appreciate that we were able to, to have the, the opportunities to do this. So as always, Steph, thank you for coming with your blue light special to talk to us about anything Thrawn related. Oh, always my pleasure. Anytime. Um, well, one final thing before we wrap, um, just a reminder to folks that we will, we will be off next week. No new episode next week. Um, but the starting the first week of December for the entire month, we are going to tackle two episodes of Ahsoka a week. Now that the, again, now that the strikes have been settled in favor of our writers and our actors, um, we are going to go ahead and do kind of our Ahsoka series. So hopefully you'll be back in two weeks as we start that, um, you know, we'll probably do this in a very typical Wampus Lair fashion with uh, just talking through some of our favorite points of each episode along the way. That's how we love to do things. Um, so hopefully you'll join us in two weeks as we start our Ahsoka series. It'll be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to going back and revisiting this the show because obviously, you know, watched it a whole bunch when it was coming out. It's been a been a minute, but uh, yeah, definitely looking forward to finally getting all of these thoughts and conversations that Carl and I have been having like between episodes actually recorded uh, and in a podcast for all of you. So uh, <laughs> it's a good, it's a good show if you haven't watched it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, but um, I think that's going to kind of start yeah. wrapping things up. Carl, if people want to uh, nope. reach out and uh, real contact quick, us. not us, oh, yes. Steph first. Uh, Steph, if that's folks, right want to be in touch with you uh, about anything Star Wars related, but especially Thrawn related, uh, where, where options for folks to connect with you? Sure. Well, so I am still somewhat regrettably on Twitter. <laughs> the less so. But uh, I do still occasionally post things there. So uh, my handle there is just at Stephanie Orm, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-O-R-M-E. Uh, and increasingly I'm trying to make the migration over to blue sky. It's been slow going (laughs) trying to establish, uh, you know, new Twitter over there, I guess. And so over there, I'm just, uh, at Steph Orm. So same spelling, uh, but you can find me over there. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again for, for being on the show. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. This was fun. It's always good talking Thrawn with Steph Orm. She's the queen of of Thrawn. 
knowledge and uh <laughs> it's it's great having you on uh carl if people want to weigh in on our conversation about outbound flight or share any of their thoughts uh on moments that we may have not have discussed from outbound flight where can people get in contact with us uh, they can do so on uh, Instagram at the Wampas Lair, or you can follow us on Twitter at Wampas Lair, or email us at Wampas Lair Podcast at gmail.com. Excellent. Uh, any final thoughts before we close this out? Nope. All right. Well, uh, we're going to head back to the unknown regions and see you next time. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening to this episode of the Wampas Lair Podcast. It's been episode 535 Outbound Flight. For Carl and Steph, I'm Jason, and we'll see you next time here in the Wampa's Lair. <laughs>